Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hello, everybody. My name is Olga Zergievich, and I am the head of investor relations at Village Global. I am pleased to introduce my guest today, Mark Iserlis. Mark is a film and TV producer and a documentary filmmaker. He is currently building tokenized film financing at Republic, an alternative fundraising platform with two and a half million users and over a billion dollars raised across tech startups, real estate, art, and music. In today's conversation, we'll discuss film finance as an asset class, evolution of the film and content production industry, and how technology is changing it, and tokenizing film finance at Republic. All right, Mark, let's start with your film career. Walk us through the formative elements of your background and some of the key moments of your film career to date. Thank you so much for having me, Olga, and thank you for including me in the Village Global community. So in terms of formative elements of my career, I I grew up in Asia, in Singapore, and I think that shaped my fascination with film in a few ways. It probably began as a kid on all those 24-hour flights to and from the U.S., where I would just stay up the whole time and watch a lot of R-rated movies that I probably wasn't supposed to at that age. I grew up in this weird environment where I was a first-generation American kid going to British schools in Singapore, uh, summers in Beijing, lucky to have traveled the region a lot, and then finally coming to New York for university. So I think I gained this cross-cultural perspective that has shaped my sense of humor and my taste in the kinds of films and projects that I get involved with. I started out working with independent film financiers, uh, and my first major film was called Hotel Mumbai, which was about the 2008 terrorist attacks at the Taj Hotel in India. And uh, that premiered at Toronto in 2018. And that was truly an amazing cross-cultural production. It had a Hollywood cast, investors from Singapore. It was filmed between Australia and India. And then I moved more into documentary directing and then scripted TV development. And then now this fascinating realm of film tech, as I call it. But yeah, I guess being this confused third culture kid, it's it's hard for me to pick a lane, but I've always made it my MO to be this bridge, I guess, between different cultures or industries, like between the East and the West, or nowadays, film and tech. Now, Hotel Mumbai is a deeply complex, thought-provoking, and touching movie. What was it about the story and the way it was told in the movie which spoke to you the most? Thank you very much, Olga. That means a lot. And I know that it's not exactly light viewing, Growing up in Singapore, I always felt super connected to India. My high school was something like one third South Asian. We had a tandoor serving naan and shot in our cafeteria. I danced Bhangra. My best friends were Indian. They used to call me the Hindu, actually. But uh, that aside, I I happened to be in Mumbai during the 2006 terrorist train bombings uh, just a few years before that and saw how the city came together to help their wounded. I was staying with a local Mumbai friend, and I remember how someone came over that day for dinner saying he carried a body from the tracks. Well, the 2008 Taj Hotel terrorist attacks was kind of like the Indian 9-11, and almost every Indian I, I know has had some relative friend or story related to the incident. And even non-Indians who've been to India are usually familiar with the Taj Hotel's beauty and the nearby gateway of India. So the story itself had such a cross-cultural setting and international context And the team around the movie came together in such a global way, too, um, as I mentioned before. So it was a powerful script. Uh, The director, Anthony Maras, 
uh, had an amazing vision. He knew exactly how to bring out the empathy and tension from its spectacular cast, Deb Patel, Jason Isaacs, uh, Anupam Kher. Um, so I was very lucky to be a part of it. And what do you have coming out next? I'm a proud producer on a biopic about the life of Salvador Dali. It's called Dali Land, starring Ben Kingsley. Um, the film premiered as the closing night gala at last year's Toronto Film Festival, and it'll be out in theaters this summer. It's written and directed by the glorious Mary Harron, who, of course, directed the cult classic American Psycho. So as you can imagine, it explores Dali's later years spent partying excessively at the St. Regis, New York, somewhat losing his way and his control over his relationship with his wife and muse, Gala. And it's all seen through the eyes of this young apprentice who comes and works for him. The film really does hold a special place uh, for me as it was the result of years in the making. It was filmed against all the odds in the height of COVID. And uh, it had some great producers on board. It was the legendary producer Ed Pressman's last film before he passed away a few months ago. Ed, of course, defined modern cinema with films like Wall Street, The Crow, Badlands, Conan the Barbarian, Thank You for Smoking. David Sachs was also a producer on the film, um, and they had done Thank You for Smoking together previously. So just really a great crew. And the other thing that I'm working on more immediately now is uh, bringing it back to Asia. I'm producing a docu-series about the China-US heroin trade with my partner Jonah Greenberg based in Beijing. It's about one of the largest heroin smugglers between China and the US in the early 2000s and arguably the first and most successful instance of collaboration between the DEA and the Chinese government. So it's kind of like an Asian narcos, but it explores this interesting concept around drug diplomacy where despite the escalating tensions between China and the US uh, then and now, the two sides do actually work together hand in hand um, on drug enforcement policy and at the end of the day to catch the bad guys. Well, look forward to both of these films. Visiting Salvador Dali's house um, near Barcelona a few years ago is one of my favorite travel memories. So look forward to uh, learning more um, through the film. Uh, now, you've had um, you've had a chance to experience different types of roles within the film industry. So talk us through what are some of the positives and negatives of being a producer versus being a documentary filmmaker versus being an actor. Oh, acting. Great. I see you dug deep into my uh, beginnings as a glorified extra. Thank you for exposing that to the entire global village. No, it's true. My, my exposure to the industry did start as an actor, and it still fascinates me today as a craft. One of the most interesting concepts that I remember from years of acting classes is that acting is about behaving truthfully under imaginary circumstances. Um, so one teacher put it to me this way, you know, on stage, you're actually being more truthful than you would be in real life. I mean, think about it. If you're walking on the street and somebody bumps into you or if someone at work is being horrible or, I mean, if I'm being too long-winded on this podcast, you know, in real life, you'd probably keep your cool. You, you'd say, don't worry about it to the guy on the street. You'd act professional at the office. You'd smile and allow me to keep talking. Um, but, but on stage, uh, audiences don't want to see people keeping their cool. You get to really explode and let it all out, tell people to shut up. And that's the stuff of drama. It, it's, it's an interesting paradigm to consider that the irony that acting is, is not about pretend, as most people think, but it's actually about being truthful um, unconditionally. But anyways, I, I must be just too repressed for all that kind of stuff. Um, so I pretty soon realized that producing has a longer shelf life and, and also makes more use of my third culture personality. And by the way, what, what does producing really mean? There's many flavors of it, from originating an idea to physically being on set. And uh, in my case, it's been about developing IP, packaging and pitching to talent, and very importantly, securing financing. 
And the positives, I mean, well, you get to make a movie, baby. Uh, the negatives, whether it's scripted or documentary, the industry is is kind of in a tough place today uh, from the decline of the box office to the commoditization of content to the very dysfunctional revenue models, which in many ways have been compounded by the streamers. So essentially, to use one of my favorite business terms, um, it can be a long walk for a ham sandwich. Well, we'll dig in more into the value chain of the industry and into film finance as an asset class in a moment. But um, tell us a little bit about what you're working on today at Republic. Um, what does tokenizing film financing mean? Uh, how does it fit within the bigger platform? What are you looking to build? Sure, yes. So I was I was seeing a lot of these ham sandwiches going around over the years. And then COVID hits and I started heading down to Miami where all the California tax refugees and crypto bros were taking shelter. And I started to learn about this narrative of decentralization. And I started to see it applied to art and music, which was super interesting and made a lot of sense, even post the age of guerrilla profile pics. I mean, for example, in fine art, your NFT can represent a fractional ownership of a painting, like a digital deed. And as the art increases in value, so does your NFT. In music, you can buy your favorite DJ's NFTs, where proceeds go towards making the next track, while giving you perks uh, to hang out with them behind the booth at the club or, or, or such. After all, music is cheap to make, but film is famously not. Uh, it takes a village to make a film. It takes years to finance, shoot, edit, release a film. And most importantly, if you invest in film, your revenues come back in the form of ticket sales, syndication royalties, airplane screenings, any other exploitation of that IP. And these are all, of course, securities. And as we've seen in the last few months, many Web3 NFT projects that were marketing themselves uh, with profit-sharing properties have been slapped down by the long arm of the SEC and deemed as illegal securities. So I was doing my research in 2021, and I soon found myself as one of the only film guys at all these tech conferences, which, which wasn't surprising as Hollywood is a bit of a bubble. And like everyone, I was trying to figure out how to deploy NFTs and tokens as this fundraising tool, trying to crack savvy and circuitous tokenomic systems around staking and earning and utility. But at the end of the day, I'm a film guy. I didn't go to Stanford for mathematics. This was way over my head. And finally, at last year's Cannes Film Festival, I met the team from Republic, and I saw a really unique opportunity. Um, as you mentioned, for background, Republic is a retail investment platform which has the SEC licenses to issue securities to everyday non-accredited U.S. investors. So for my mom listening in Singapore in English, yeah, we're talking about crowdfunding, but unlike Kickstarter, which is a donation and a thank you, raising on Republic gives you the ability to give profits back to regular everyday folks who want to invest directly into private market assets like startups, tech, real estate, gaming, and, and now film. And uh, since 2016, as mentioned, we've deployed a lot of money from a lot of users. And over the recent years, I saw Republic starting to offer investments into more alternative asset classes, fine wine, um, art tokenized music rights libraries. We've seen that this is a big business from sales like Justin Bieber's you know, rights catalog to hypnosis for 200 million. So when I heard about Republic's Reg CF exemptions, uh, building a film financing vertical was a no-brainer. This it, Republic has this platform that can enable filmmakers to raise equity from their fans and communities and give them a share of the profits and not go to jail, or at least not for securities violations. So it's, it's exciting in many ways. It's, it's democratizing access to private market investments that usually only high net worth individuals or VCs might have had. Um, and there's a tokenized element to it. These, these equity shares are digital tokens on the blockchain, which means more transparency, lower transaction fees, and the ability to eventually trade your stake in the film on a secondary market. 
So with security tokens doing the job of the fundraising, you can also then allow all those NFTs to do what they do best, community engagement, utility perks, and ancillary revenue streams coming in even before the distribution of the film. So I, I found this really exciting, really innovative, not to mention fun and inspiring to sort of educate people in the industry about this new tool. And so would you expect the type of films that get produced because they are financed by individuals on the platform, would you expect those to be different than what gets produced today in some ways? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, Olga. Um, at first, my ambition at Republic is for audiences and fans to be able to invest and to share in the success of different types of film properties. Uh, this could be well-known franchise IP. It could be cause-driven content, or it could even be their favorite athletes or musicians' film debut. I mean, think about those UFC fans who pay $80 a weekend to watch the fight. I bet they jump to be a producer on their favorite fighter's film. But I think one day the dream is that Republic's film platform can also be this place where investors get to browse through all types of premium film projects that are up on the platform, and in a sense, get to greenlight what they want to see made. And that could really reflect some changing tastes. We're hearing a lot about Marvel fatigue, Netflix's algorithm, and the Hollywood echo chamber. And we're also starting to see some Web3 projects and companies which enable creators and fans to co-write stories and originate new ideas together. Of course, building these communities is super important and can complement an equity fundraise or, or fan raise, as I like to call it. And this is where I do work with Republic's NFT and Web3 advisory services as well to create these engagement ecosystems. But either way, I, I support the creator and I believe that hopefully fan raising on Republic can give filmmakers more opportunities to make their films, innovate without studio overlords and create content that skates to where the puck is going. So that's a perfect segue into my next question. Let's talk through the film production value chain. Who are the main players and how technology, both tech companies and new tech capabilities, changed and are continuing to change the film industry? Okay, yeah, this is a big one. So for this question, I'd like to break it into two parts. Um, this will be long. First, I'll discuss the traditional film value chain and kind of how movies made. And then I'll go into some of its pain points and how these have been pressed deeper over the past 10 years. So, so bear with me. The way I kind of view the film and TV landscape today is in, in, in three kind of, to simplify, three buckets. On one end, you have the big studios, the Disney, Sony's, Universal's. So these guys have plenty of money. They've been around for a long time and they have huge IP franchises like Marvel and, and they own the A to Z of the value chain from concept stage to distribution and to cinemas around the world. And these guys are in the business of producing $100 million budget blockbusters. And they don't usually need the help of private investors unless they're syndicating you know, chunks to really large check sizes. On, in another bucket, you have the TV space, which we're in the golden age of right now, today. Um, but these similarly don't require much private financing. You know, These days, for example, an episode of HBO Succession might cost $10 million US. All those great cast members... Um, writer's fees, helicopter scenes to the Hamptons. So 10 million times 10 episodes, you're talking about a $100 million season of TV. So you're not really going to independently fundraise and produce that show. You're going to want a big network or streamer to pay for it once you bring in the pitch. And not only that, each streamer naturally has its own style of how they'd execute that concept for their network's demographic. So the same show concept might look very different on HBO versus Netflix or Amazon. So even if you did go off and somehow privately finance a $100 million show, 
you might not have a buyer at the end of it. So you don't really want to be left holding that bag. Um, you just want to kind of develop the concept and sell it to a network. And these days they'll buy the IP off you in some way and pay you producing or writing fees for it. So the space that really needs help sits in the middle of these two monolithic systems, the independent film space. Now, this is where films usually between the two and $20 million range are developed and hustled outside of the big studio system and are funded by private equity investors and ideally, you know, premiered at film festivals around the world in the hopes of being bought by a distribution company that will then market your film, put it out into theaters and deliver huge box office upside. So, you know, if you make a movie for $5 million and it creates a bidding war to festival and it gets a great distributor who mounts a great marketing campaign, puts it on tons of screens and it becomes a runaway success, you can make hundreds of million dollars back. You may have heard of these legendary examples such as the Blair Witch Project or Paranormal Activity, movies made for less than 100,000 and grossed off a couple hundred million in the box office. Um, or, or, or more likely award starlings like Pulp Fiction or Napoleon Dynamite or Moonlight, you know, just as in VC, you can achieve these unicorn multiples. But this revenue model has been pressed more and more over the years for a number of reasons. So I'd like to walk you through kind of high level how an independent film is financed, usually. And it's a bit similar to real estate, where you have equity investors on one hand, and you have soft money as well, financed by debt. So let's say we have a $10 million film. Olga, you and I, we're independent film producers. And we want to make Village Global the movie. So we've spent a bit of our own money to develop the story. That means like optioning rights and hiring a writer to pay for the script. Okay, and then let's say we get the script killer. And, and, and we want to attach now a, a killer actor on board to, to really make this thing uh, fly. So, so who do you want to play you? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, let me think about it. I love Sienna Miller, so okay. let's go with her. Okay, great. Sienna Miller. Love it. Um, let's call her Sienna. First name basis. So you send the script around town through all your connections, your agents, and you eventually the script gets to Sienna and she loves it. She says, I'm going to attach myself to this project. And ideally with that name, you know, it just helps you raise money. And of course, she's going to act in it if it gets funded. So let's say you manage to find some passionate equity investors who love the story, love Sienna, and they agree to invest $4 million, um, or that's how much you end up raising. So you still have another $6 million of your $10 million budget to fill. And for this, historically, you can turn to two types of soft money. Uh, the first, of course, is foreign tax credits. So, you know, incentives from different states or countries where they say, come film your movie in Louisiana, Georgia, Romania, and you're bringing jobs here and you'll get 30 cents back on the dollar once the movie is delivered. But that's once the movie is delivered. So you have to take that IOU for that tax rebate from the state or country and go to a bank or a debt facility and cash that in. So now you have another $3 million. So you have $3 million left now of your $10 million. And the other way to do it is to, you decide you're going to pre-sell some foreign distribution rights to your film in international territories. So this is where the big film sales markets like Berlin, Cannes, Toronto come into play. It's where we take our poster of our movie, our script, and even you know our big cast attachment, Sienna Miller, we take that to a film market and we get these upfront minimum guarantees from territories all around the world. So as films producers, we will hire a foreign sales agency who knows the international market, knows all the distributors, and they'll have meetings all day with Germany, Benelux, Middle East, Singapore, Japan, distributors from all around the world seeking content for their regional box offices, and they'll make deals with them. 
And these distributors, they'll they'll say, oh, okay, Sienna Miller, this kind of genre. Okay, wow, we know from our historical comps that Sienna can draw X amount from our domestic box office. So they'll tell us if and when we deliver the film, as we're promising, uh, they'll give us a minimum guarantee payment of X amount and maybe a small revenue split from the box office in their territory. So of course, if the film or property that you're selling is really hot, you can actually raise a lot of money from international pre-sales. Um, but let's say for now you raise the remaining three million from all these collective minimum guarantees, these IOUs from all these different territories. And now you take that to the bank and boom, you're filled. You've got your 10 million equity and soft money in debt. Okay, so obviously this is a Herculean feast, uh, feat as an indie producer. And let's say you manage to wrangle all of your deals, you know, your talent agencies, you make sure your other investors don't drop out. The actor's schedules are free. There's no force majeure events like COVID. I mean, there's a, there's a lot that has to happen to then green light and be off to the races and film the movie. Amazing. Okay, so you've made the movie. Now the fun part. Let's let's do best case scenario here. You shoot for a few months after editing. It's been a year and your film turns out great and you submit it to prestigious festivals like Cannes or Venice. And let's say it gets accepted and it has an awesome premiere. Everybody in town or at the festivals is buzzing about your film. They're calling it an awards baby and all that. So now you need your film to be picked up by a domestic distributor. You've got your foreign distribution sales already taken care of, but you know the big market is the US and the UK. So these are where distributors like A24, Magnolia, Neon, Annapurna, um, you know, you want to you want to create a bidding war ideally for these different distributors to to tell you how much they believe in the film and to put their money behind it, to give it the best shot possible in marketing and in as many theaters as possible. By the way, you might have seen these names on the screen before of some of your favorite films. And you might've thought A24 was a production company, for example. Well, well, actually at their core origins, they're a distribution company whose job it is to go to festivals and pick and buy the best movies, create a smart distribution and marketing strategy for them and, and, and really, really pump them out. So as we're saying, ideally the movie's so great that there's a bidding war between different distributors and you wanna take the best deal possible. Again, the deal will have a mix of a minimum guarantee, which the distributor will say, no matter how the movie does, you'll get this much amount up front. And they'll also have an agreed upon marketing spend. Uh, that'll define how much they believe in the movie and how much they want to spend to really pump it in as many screens as possible. And uh, and then also, of course, the strategy of where the film shows after that in, in other ancillary platforms and revenue streams. They'll also dis dis you know discuss the distributor fees and the revenue splits. So anyways... The best distributor will believe in the film's potential the most, and they'll cut you the best deal with the best minimum guarantee and and the best splits from the ticket sales. And if they're more conservative, of course, they'll give the film a shorter theatrical window and try to make a deal for, for straight to cable or streaming. But let's say we make a great deal. Oh, my God. Village Global, the movie, now has the best distributor on board. And they're going to market the hell out of this film. You know, awesome trailers, posters on the subway. They might even change the title to something sexy like Viva La Venture. So they release it theatrically. And now the money starts coming in. Okay. Here we have the famous film waterfall. And it goes something, it goes high level like this. First, the exhibitor or the theater chain takes roughly half of all ticket sales. Maybe a little less, depends on the deal. Then the distributor, uh, they take almost half of that, maybe 30% in fees, plus, you know, they recoup their minimum guarantee, and then they have to recoup their marketing costs. This, as you know, from media buys, can sometimes be double the entire film's budget. 
Um, meanwhile, receipts from all these other foreign territories that you made deals on are also coming in from around the world. So you'll have to pay your foreign sales agent who brokered those deals uh, their 15% and their marketing costs too. So this is all coming off the top of ticket sale. Then what's left goes to pay back that debt, which was used to cover your tax credits and foreign pre-sales IOUs. And that's usually with about 12% interest. And then there's the union fees, deferred costs, collection account fees, until finally what's left goes to paying back equity investors at their principal plus a 20% premium. And then there's the net profits pool for the long tail of the film, which is split 50-50 between the producers who can give points to their cast and crew and, and whoever, and the equity investors uh, who split up their 50% pro rata pari passu. And ideally, you continue to make money over the long tail of the film in residuals, royalties, secondary showings, Broadway remakes, uh, and of course, the glorious cult following that our film Viva La Venture will create. Okay, so that was a lot. That's kind of beginning to end soup to nuts of, of, the, of independent film financing and distribution journey. So we'll take a breath, but to answer your, your, your question, how has tech started to change the industry? Well, over the years, as I'm sure you've seen and heard, um, people have started to go to the cinemas less. People got nicer TVs at home and started going out more just for the tentpole blockbusters, you know, take the family to the Marvel or Avatar, but watch the Blue Valentine or the Lobster when the kids go to bed. And then, of course, in the 2010s, the streamers started ramping up. So these streamers started to go to the film festivals and splash their cash and basically outbid all the traditional theatrical distributors. So for your five, for your for our $10 million film, rather than make deals with these distribution the distributors around minimum guarantees and what it will take to recoup from hefty marketing costs and, and you know, risk unknown theatrical performance, Netflix would just come and buy the film out for a large lump sum and basically put you and your investors in the black. Of course, this can be great. And we still see this happening with films like even at this year's Sundance Festival, uh, Fair Play, a small budget indie that Netflix bought for 20 million. So these films and its investors, they don't have to worry about losing money in the precarious waterfall and getting to recoupment. But of course, the downside is they won't ever get to that unlimited breakaway upside. They, they'll never really see net profits because in a gangster kind of move, the streamers, they buy out all of your IP in perpetuity. So all global distribution rights, back-end proceeds, sequels and adaptation rights, merchandising, everything. But it's 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 kind of the risk ratio, the risk analysis that you want you you will take in that situation based on the film and its reception and its deals. So apart from the splashy acquisitions at these film festivals or big Scorsese films like like Netflix's The Irishman, these streamers started to also commission you know originals like Netflix originals, and they did this using a cost plus model. This is where they commission or buy a film for its budget, and then add a 15% premium to sort of pay you off. And over the years, as indie films started to have less chance of succeeding at a declining box office, producers wanted to take less risk and streamers took more hold of the market. And eventually those premiums started to fall from 15% to 10% to 5% or less. And since producers are no longer living for that theatrical upside, um, their incentives would be just to get paid from fees within the budget and just to produce more and more films that fed Netflix's algorithm. So that's why today we hear about the commoditization of film, the oversaturation of Marvel and movies and the box office and, and even the declining quality now of Netflix. So that's sort of my state of the union today. It's, it's tougher for many films to succeed in the box office and there are limited profitable distribution paths. 
But what's scary also is that you're even seeing the black atoms of this world underperform. And, and yeah, you're seeing even Netflix now share prices falling. It also seems that a lot of the idiosyncratic elements about every film would probably play a huge role in how commercially successful it ends up being. So what would you, what would be your advice for investors who want to invest in this asset class because it probably has high likelihood of being uncorrelated to other asset classes? So if you, you know, I guess one route would be to go on Republic and see what financing opportunities there are available. But um, just overall, you know, should you think of it as a, as a portfolio, it seems that it's in many ways very similar to venture capital portfolios, right? In terms of it's, it's a power law business. So what would you recommend for investors who look to allocate both in terms of, you know, how to do it on a portfolio basis, but then also, you know, should they work with, with certain types of intermediaries um, and how should they think about de-risking? So despite the gloomy picture I've painted just now, I do want to say that film still holds an important place in culture and society. And it can be a lot of fun to make a movie. And if you follow your passion and your taste, you do sometimes achieve breakout successes. Uh, films like Little Miss Sunshine, which cost $8 million and made over $100 million in the box office. Or um, Slumdog Millionaire, which cost $15 million and grossed $368 million worldwide. And, and My Big Fat Greek Wedding did the same. Um, Rocky was made for a million, and today that franchise is now worth $1.7 billion. Same thing with the Saw horror franchise. And believe it or not, even the original Star Wars is considered an indie film with a budget of 11 million. And today that franchise is worth 60 to 70 billion at least. But of course, these unicorns are few and far between. So it's not dissimilar, dissimilar to VC investing, where to hedge your risk, it's best to invest in a portfolio or a slate of films. And your movie doesn't have to be a best picture winner to make money. I mean, for example, genre films like horror and sci-fi are cheap to make and have loyal fan bases who still turn up to the cinemas to watch them. And these films consistently make returns. So we, we've and we've also seen a, a heyday for the documentary uh, genre, another low budget medium, which has become an entire industry for network commissioners. So a lot of investors, you know, find film financing exciting, inspiring. And after all, it's art. And what's exciting for people like like me is the obvious fact that this industry is extremely ripe for disruption for many of the reasons I've described above in the film value chain. And this is, again, where I'm super excited about what we're doing at Republic. My thesis is that the more you can finance a film through equity on platforms like Republic, using communities, the less debt and third-party fees you have to take on to fill the budget. And the sooner, then, that the waterfall can pay back these investors without all these other people above you. And also, as a film's producer, you know, uh, with a community that you have, you can leverage this in a distribution deal. Let's say you have a 1,000 investors behind your film. You know, the film now has this guaranteed audience of financially incentivized marketers, and that can save you on print and advertising costs uh, when you're negotiating your distribution deal, because these also eat into the profits. Not to mention, then, you've also got the crypto tokenization element, which we're introducing, and this can create new paths to revenue through things like NFT campaigns before the film has even been released. And the ability to trade your token share on a secondaries market can create new value for the film along its entire economic life cycle. So slowly, my hope is that though we still have a ways to go to change the way people consume content, if we can open up more innovative paths to financing and distribution, we can sort of chip away at that dysfunctionality of the film value chain and rebalance the scales of the revenue model.
So where are you in terms of your product roadmap at Republic? What have you built already? What's been challenging? Where have you seen most traction? What are some of the early lessons learned and um, and things that excite you about that path um, of building out new part of you know film financing um, opportunities set there? So I've been going out to the film industry uh, as the first step to build out our pipeline of projects that will launch on Republic for these equity raises. And I've been reaching out to different types of entities in different ways. Uh, firstly, I've been going up to the independent filmmaker or producer and letting them know, hey, now there's another avenue to finance your film than just the usual high net worth individual or predatory studio deals. Uh, let's turn to your community to invest and share in the financial upside of your project. Um, I'm also going out to brand name production companies, which are developing slates of films and structuring deals for fans to get in on the portfolio of films. This can be especially meaningful to production companies uh, run by celebrity talent. For example, most actors have their own companies that are constantly developing passion projects or are known for a certain brand of films which their fans love. Uh, think about M. Night Shyamalan's films. When, when you go to see his movies, you know what kind of an experience you're in for. Similarly with Wes Anderson's Indian Paintbrush and the auteur types of films that he puts out. Or Seth MacFarlane's Fuzzy Door and the crazy type of family guy humor he has. Even Jason Bateman's aggregate films. You know, should these talent pods ever want to raise and produce a project outside of studio control, what better way than to invite their fans to be a part of their company's journey? And I believe that these fans would leap at the chance to invest via security token or even utility token that gives them certain behind the scenes access or even a Zoom with their talent. And lastly, I'm, I'm also talking to some larger studios which have franchise level IP. Um, with the logic that what better way to reward your fans of your IP than to offset a $5 million tranche of the equity uh, to them so that fans can say, you know, I made that next movie. And being a known IP, of course, it's also a safer bet for investors. And of course, there's also these other additional low-hanging ancillary revenue opportunities, such as digital collectibles or a studio utility token. So We've been onboarding a range of projects in these three camps, and uh, these three types of projects also require the development of new proprietary securities instruments for the Reg CF raise. So for the individual film equity investment, we're developing a Republic revenue share instrument for film. Uh, for the slate development raise, there, there's a type of loan instrument. And of course, to invest in a production company, we can turn to Republic's CrowdSafe instrument. And we've already had some success in that department, the production company uh, Skybound, which produced series like The Walking Dead and other IP, has already raised $12.5 million uh, to date on Republic. Of course, there's significant challenges uh, in the need to educate and inform the market, uh, both to filmmakers and producers, that there are these new financing tools available and how they work, and also to distributors and studios that we can be this complementary path to engage audiences and create new revenue streams. And of course, as projects are on board to Republic, we'll also have to clearly convey the film revenue model to retail investors who are interested in financing. But, but overall, we're really ex excited for the potential of this new film vertical, and we're doing something and offering something that not many other platforms can do. Oh, that sounds super exciting. And let's move to some of the other players in the film industry. So what role do film festivals play? Well, in the past, you know, you'd go to a film festival and you could actually raise the entire budget of a film just right off the poster. Uh, from foreign pre-sales. Um, so it's very productive in that sense. Obviously, there's been a bit of a slump in foreign pre-sales and acquisitions as described. But like with many conferences in the industry, there's there's an important network effect that happens when you meet new creators, when you share deals with other producers, and when you celebrate the miracle of film. I mean, in some ways, it really is a miracle. It's, it's, it's a meritocracy in a way. 
if you can deliver an incredible film that makes it into a Cannes or a Venice or a Toronto, I mean, so why not wear a tux to a premiere and celebrate years or even decades of work and creativity? And it's highly fun. I recommend everybody joins me at one. <laughs> well, I certainly enjoyed uh, the last one I attended. And thanks for calling out Fair Play. Um, I want to go on record by saying that I stated the second I saw it that I thought it was going to be one of the biggest successes from the festival. Um, really, really strong and just an amazing film. Um, so is the United States still the global leader when it comes to film industry? And who are some of the other rising stars? Well, in 2020, China finally overtook the U.S. as the world's largest box office. And they have a huge theater going population, as does India. I think they're number two. And uh I think they believe they they put out the most number of films, I think, every year. And Nigeria is probably a close second. But, you know, still, when it comes to budget sizes of production, the U.S. is still the global leader uh, in terms of making big films and big TV shows and investing in that. I do believe that this is the golden age of long form storytelling that we're in. It was pioneered by shows like The Sopranos, The Wire, Breaking Bad. I mean, it's really I think this has really still been established in the West. And it's it's known that Asia's budgets uh, for similar products are are half that of the U.S.'s. But I hope that's going to change. I mean, what's really encouraging is that the Korean wave of films and TV uh, are really, you know, picking up heat uh, from crazy and from crazy rich Asians to Parasite to Squid Game. Mainstream domestic audiences are, are finally happy to look more global, more outwards than just Europe or South America. They'll read the subtitles in different languages. And so with my roots from Asia... I want to be very bullish on that cross-cultural dream and invest in developing content with Southeast Asia, for example, which has an English-speaking culture and an incredibly diverse cosmopolitan history and a population of over 600 million. And what, in your opinion, is key to good storytelling? And what are some of the ways for um, for people to get better at it? Oh, man. Okay, I know there might be a lot of truly brainiacs in Silicon Valley, but the one leg that the film industry still has to stand on is that we are the best storytellers, period. I once I once took a course with a famous story consultant and lecturer called Robert McKee, and he made an argument that telling a good story that has believable character development, that grips the audience's empathy and suspends their disbelief and rewards them throughout the story, surprises them at the end, is maybe the hardest thing in the world to do. He says it's even harder than nuclear physics, because math is still based on laws while story is originated purely from innate blue sky imagination. Um, I'm, maybe it's kind of true, but you know, how often these days do you watch something, but it's then something is trite or predictable or it's, it's solved too conveniently. You, you've seen it before, or the ending is a letdown, you know, despite all the other good things that have happened in that show, you just, you throw the whole thing away because you're disappointed by that, that ending or whatever. I mean, audiences have just become extremely, extremely savvy today. We've been spoiled by so much good content and it's getting harder and harder to impress us. So, you know, we're in the age where you have people who aren't just going to watch the new celebrity talent vehicle. They want to see the next Aaron Sorkin show. So there are certainly structures that follow human storytelling traditions, the hero's journey, the five act structure, which has an exposition, a rising climax, a falling action and a resolution. But these days, I think it's actually more about breaking the rules. Again, since audience think that they've seen it all, um, su surprise them. Just look at what HBO's The Last of Us is doing. They're shifting between character storylines and unique episodic structures. And audience appreciate kind of subtlety. It's rewarding when you as a viewer do the work of piecing the puzzle together. And as a writer, you want to strategically withhold information from your audience. 
So they say that stage is an actor's medium, film is a director's medium, and TV is a writer's medium. And we're definitely in the age of the writer. But if you're asking me, hey, what do I know? I'm just, I'm just a producer or a fintech bro now. I don't know which one's worse. So I cannot not ask you about one of the greatest cultural phenomena of last year, White Lotus. Um, why has it become so popular? Oh, yeah. Who doesn't love a White Lotus? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's definitely the cream of the crop in terms of the recent flurry of Eat the Rich content. Um, maybe that genre or style has become so popular in this age of social media voyeurism and even sense of schadenfreude amidst economic downturn. I mean, the excesses of wealth is an easy target. It's, so again, it's, it comes down to execution. I had so much fun watching Triangle of Sadness in the theaters. I hadn't had an experience like that with an audience in ages reacting viscerally in real time. To White Lotus's credit, they their TV show, they have a longer, you know, play, they have a bigger playground. So they can explore themes beyond wealth, like sex or generation gaps or political ideologies. I think with movies like The Menu, this genre is starting to reach a bit of a saturation point where it starts to be just some kind of display for the public court without saying anything new. So again, it's about delivering something fresh um, to an increasingly discerning audience. And White Lotus is is just every season they're going to explore a fun, crazy new theme and cast. So, you know, it's constantly surprising. One of the reasons we get along so well is because you're a journalist, you have a lot of different perspectives, you've traveled to many places. In addition to growing up and studying between Singapore and China, you've also traveled extensively in in Central Asia. So what are some of the hidden gems and your favorite travel reflections from those destinations? Ah, yes. Central Asia speaks so much uh, to my third culture mixed up identity. The former Soviet Union, where my parents were born, the, the hub of the Silk Road between the East and the West, the rich madrasas of Islamic influence, and um, just this true sense of fresh adventure. You know, I feel like compared to South America, Africa, Asia, uh, people don't really know as much about these stands and all their rich intermingled history, uh, their friendly people, the delicious food, um, the incredible resources in nature there. I'm proud to say that I visited all the stands now from the Pamir Highway, which is the rooftop of the world from Tajikistan to Kyrgyzstan, um, and even a tour of Turkmenistan, which we entered on a cargo freight ferry across the Caspian Sea from Azerbaijan. And I'd love to work in this part of the world one day, but I guess when I get out there, most of all, I just love and need that sense of removal, you know, that paradigm shift from speaking about film tech and HBO shows over Zooms with brilliant venture capitalists um, to this place that reflects another era where my phone doesn't even work. And maybe then I'll at least I'll finally get to read that book again or or that great script that will be our next film, Unicorn. Well, super exciting. And what a perfect way to wrap up this conversation about um, film and finance and tech and uh, multiculturalism and the world through some excellent storytelling. Mark, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me, Olga. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.